If you have your Bibles, take them out. John 17, I'm going to do a series the next seven weeks uh, following up on the series that uh, Dawson just finished on the I am statements of Jesus. Um, You know, everybody, almost everybody on planet Earth believes in God. This is not a debate. There are very, very few, something like 2 to 3% of people are true atheists. There are many, many agnostics, but they will still acknowledge a belief in some kind of a deity or God or something out there. Uh, But the vast majority of people in our world are religious. They believe in something. And so you can have a conversation with about anybody you want. And if you talk about God in the abstract, you will have no problem. People will agree with you. They'll want to talk about whatever that is because they probably created whatever that is out of their imagination out of their thinking what they want God to be or how they would like him to be and if you examine very carefully and you ask the right questions you often find out that it's just them they create God in their own image because that's comfortable for us that God that's created in our own image will never cross you he'll never he'll never say no to you he'll always say yes to you even to the point that you could commit horrific crimes and get arrested. Well, I heard a voice. God told me. You see, if you, on the other hand, say these words, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King. He is the Creator. He Himself is God all of a sudden, everything gets pared down to a very small group of people. And I hope that you all here are among those. And uh, So the issue of who Jesus, the reason the I am sayings that Dawson covered so well is because if anybody else had been crucified, no big deal. The Romans, they crucified thousands, tens of thousands. What makes his death any different? What makes his life any different? And I would argue it's who got crucified that makes the difference. And that's the dividing line. In fact, it's the dividing line for eternity. So let's look at, I'm going to follow up because we're going to go into for the next seven weeks, John 17. This is the prayer that Jesus made to his father right before the crucifixion. I'm not going to read it all because it's just too long, but... I'll be reading the first eight verses. And then what I'd like to suggest is that over the next few weeks, start at the end of chapter 13 and read the farewell discourse. Uh, I did a series on this years ago, the farewell discourse, that's 14 through uh, 16. And uh, it's it's just full of majesty and beauty. But Jesus' prayer, this prayer, he caps it off. And how you understand this prayer, how you think about it, I can tell you it'll change your life. Okay? So uh, let's do that. Starting in chapter 17, now hear God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ in whom whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is an extraordinary prayer. It often goes by different names. The uh, high priestly prayer of Jesus, uh, the great prayer Uh, I chose to just call it the prayer of Jesus, and so I hope that by doing that, you'll just look at it with fresh eyes. Uh, Jesus does act as a high priest in his prayer, but he does some other things that I think are very interesting that I want to point out over the next seven weeks. This prayer, like any other prayer or any other part of the Bible, should shape you, help you think about your life and how your life Uh, intersects God's life and is conjoined with the life that God has offered us and then also how it affects you in your daily going about your daily business well how can Jesus prayer have anything to do with my life well he prays for you he prays for his disciples for us but he starts by praying from for himself so I'm going to give you very quickly Uh, A brief outline, this is how, if you want to jot this down, it's great. There's a place for notes in your thing. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays specifically for himself. In 6 through 8, the last few verses, is kind of a a transition, if you will. Uh, He's going to talk about his work on earth. This is very important because Jesus was not taking long naps before eternity started, before creation. Whatever he was doing, he was fully engaged along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. However, all that mystery works up there in in, uh, the, the, the heavens above, we don't know. But Jesus was not just sitting idly by and, and doing stuff. He was actually fully engaged in whatever It was. We don't know. We probably will never know. But there it is. So this is a transition that tells you what he's going to talk about is his work here on on the earth. The time he was born till the time that he died. That period of 33 plus whatever the years are. So beginning in chapter, I mean in verse 9, pardon me, 9 through 19 he prays specifically for his disciples. And because of the context, we know it's the disciples of that day, his disciples, the 12 that he named apostles and the others that were following him, men, women, all of them that were following him. 
But again, the, the nature of the prayer shows us that everything he says about them is also captured in the third part of this little brief outline. He prays for all believers uh, in verses 20 through 26. So that's the framework of his prayer, and we're going to go at it uh, pretty much like that. And this is just introducing, I'll talk about the, the subject in a moment. Here's some elements of his prayer. And if you go through, you can, you can tell some of his prayer, in fact, most of his prayer, listen to this, he is not asking for anything. He is simply affirming things, which to me was very, very interesting. That his conversation with God was not the typical grocery list of things that he needed, but he was rehearsing his work, God's work. He was affirming his disciples. He was even stretching out into time and eternity to us, to those of us sitting here today. Whether you're a believer or not, he was thinking about people, all people. He has everybody's face imprinted in his eyes. He knows every one of us When a hair of our head falls off, God help us, right? When a hair of our head falls off, he knows that hair of our... When a sparrow falls to the ground, he sees it. This is who we're talking about, an amazing person. You can talk about God all day in the abstract, but when you start talking about Jesus, now you're on holy ground because you can't understand God in the abstract and none of you have seen the Holy Spirit. He's invisible. How in the world could we ever know God? How could we ever get our arms around this person of Jesus? So he talks about his work on earth. He talks about his message, his miracles, making the Father known. He talks about the cross. The disciples, he, he, he affirms his disciples knowing that they'll turn their back on him. That should comfort every one of us. If I asked for, I know that not, I will raise my hand. I have turned my back on Jesus. Not this morning. Yesterday. I mean, think about it. How many times has he ignored? How many times has he taken for granted? How many times do we really just not think? He doesn't come into our thinking until something terrible happens and then we start crying out for help. And listen to this. One commentator says, if you listen to what, what he, he talks about the disciples' qualification, listen, they were not, it was not about their obedience to individual commandments, teachings, but this, simply this, their readiness to trust him and his word. You see, he doesn't roll it out and say, oh, look at Peter, what a stalwart of faith. Hey, look over here, look at uh, uh, Judas Iscariot. He's a really good guy. We don't know what he's up to, but anyway, it could be bad. It's not that. He doesn't affirm them for their goodness. He affirms them simply for their willingness to trust him. And why every sermon here at Christ the King ends with, will you trust him? What do you think? Does he want you to jump through hoops? Does he want you to jump over tall buildings with a single bound and with a cape? I mean, that would be cool, right? But that's not what he's asking you. He's asking you to trust him. 
in everything, with everything, no matter what it is, as hard as it is, as painful as it is, that you'll just put your hand in his and say, okay, I'm with you. All right. He talks about protection from the evil one. He talks about unity and love. A lot of you have heard these things. About sanctifying or setting apart uh, his uh, disciples through his word. And then finally he talks about what I want them to be with me. Forever. In eternity. With me. Amazing. And throughout his prayer, 26 verses, shot through it is this idea of glory. So today we're going to talk a little bit about glory. I don't want to go too long, but I want to introduce the idea and the thought and the biblical concept of glory. And uh, shot through it all five times in the first five verses, he's, he mentions the word glory. And then two more times he mentions it in the prayer, once referring to his disciples and once referring to everybody, to his church. Magnificent. So let's look at this theme of glory because to understand the prayer of Jesus, you've got to understand what he's talking about when he says glory. When we think of glory, we kind of think of something sparkly, uh, bright, you know, some revulgent, some bright light or something like that. And, and that's true. That's often how God's glory was displayed uh, uh, in the creation so that people could, you know, have an idea of it. But that was not his glory. What is his glory? Listen to this. It's from uh, Paul Tripp. Uh, Paul Tripp has a little weekly thing you can sign up for. It's really good. And I went back in the archives, dug this one out. Glory isn't so much a thing as it is a description. So what Tripp is saying is glory is not something out here uh, that you can separate from God himself. Listen, this is hard to get your head around it, and I will be the first to admit it's incomprehensible, but it is not non-apprehensible. In other words, you may not be able to, the concept of glory is like the concept of God. You cannot get your arms all right. You cannot comprehend into 100%. There's no way. Only he knows himself. It's called aseity. That's a... Uh, theological term. He only knows himself fully. But you can get your arms around him part of the way, and that's what he wants. It's kind of like a hug. He wants you to lay hold on him, even if it's just the hem of his garment. And people say, well, I've got to learn all this theology. No, you don't. I know all the theology. I'll tell you everything you need to know. Please don't. As a joke, Where's Rick? See, I've been away too long. I'm trying to be funny. That's not funny. All right. So uh, anyway, glory. What is it? Um, It's two things. It's what he does, and it's who he is. See, it's not a separate thing from him. It is him. Who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, who weighed the mountains in a scale. Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads out his tent 
The heavens like a tent that he can dwell in. The heavens declare the glory of God, the earth, his handiwork. He's saying that you look at everything around you, you experienced glory this morning listening to our our group. The beauty, it goes, it goes way beyond just hitting your ears. It can evoke emotion. It can move you. Or a football game. You know, you get, I mean, your team's winning and you're going out of your mind. Those things are glorious. And many of them are good. But God is saying, and using this hyperbolic language, he's saying, look, this is glory everywhere, but what about him? Holding all the water in the palm of all the mountains, the trees of the field will clap their hands. He's saying all of creation, nature. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the earth, the earth is in it. So, that's what he does. He's saying, everything I do is glorious because of who I am. Now, you might think he's praising himself, but it's not like that. Because his glory is something that he is and does. So, what about who he is? The word glory in Hebrew, many of you have heard this, is gavod. Yavod. Uh, in in uh, Greek, we use the word doxa. That's glory. So you have doxology or the doxology. Uh, And in many of these uh, prayers of Jesus and in the prayers of Paul and some of the others, you hear them in their discourse break out into doxology. Uh, Paul does it in Romans uh, chapter 1, which I'll read in just a minute, portion of it. So it's what he does and who he is. It's his, listen, it's it, and you can't say everything about it because it's too, it's too grand, but I'll give you a few. Glory, when it's respect to God, is his reputation. It's his honor, his fame, his, his significance, his weightiness. St. Augustine called it gravitas. His, his, just his weight, who he is. Gravitas, this weight and heaviness. Beauty, unspeakable beauty. Holiness, his attributes, all of his attributes. There's lists of attributes. His incomparability. This is why here at Christ the King, a part of our liturgy, I try to do it every week, is to include the phrase, there is no one like you in heaven above and the earth Beneath, get a concordance, go look for it. Started out in, in uh, Exodus chapter 15, the song of Miriam. and the women. They were singing. There's no one like you. There's, a, there's God's galore. Every, there's God's, everybody's got God. There are millions of gods. The Hindu pantheon, over 350 million gods. So what? There's no one like you. Incomparability, uniqueness, power, Beauty, unbelievable. Moses said, show me your glory. Exodus 33, he begged God, show me your glory. And God said, okay, I'll show you my glory. Come here, get next to this crevice of the rock because you can't look at me in the face. If you see my face, you're going to die. 
Keep that in mind. If you see my face, you will die. Keep that in mind. So I'm going to hide you in this, this little cave, this little cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover your eyes and pass by. And, and there's a lot of humor in, in the Hebrew. It's kind of funny. You can see my backside. I'll let you look at this. You can see my holy booty, but that's all. So, so what was Jesus asking? What is his glory? I just told you. Glory doesn't sum it all up. It just gives you a description of him. Think about that. So what is Jesus asking? Look at these verses. He starts with, glorify the Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jesus, you'd think, you know, if he was just praying for himself, you'd have to go, really? But no. He says, whatever I am, I want it to be also with you, for you, like it was before. He's hinting at his co-eternality, his glory being co-equal with God, not 50%, 50%, but 100%, 100%. That's what a lot of the scripture, that's what it is. It's both 100%. 100%. God has 100% glory. Jesus has 100% glory. And the Holy Spirit has 100% glory. So when you're looking for scriptures to prove to your Mormon or Jehovah Witness or whoever, friends that don't understand the Trinity, tell them, I don't understand it either. But these are the scriptures you want to go to to prove the reality of something like the Trinity. Glorify your son so that he may glorify you. Isaiah 42 says, God said, I will share my glory with no one else. My glory is mine. And no one can share it. And here, Jesus is praying... (laughs) Remember that glory I had? I want to share it with you again. Amazing. Then he talks about uh, that he he wants to be, because he was given uh, authority to give eternal life and making the Father known, I finished the work. You can hear the word finished in what he says. He doesn't pray for anything. He says, I did it, Father. I've accomplished your work. I'm here, I'm on the threshold of going to the cross. I'm on the threshold of entering back into your glory that I had before. But there's something I must do first. But I have finished it. And you see it when he gets to the garden. All the work that you've given me to do. He says, I have finished it. Then he prays again, petition. Glorify me with your own presence, with the glory I had before the world existed. Another perfect um, scripture to, to at least share the idea of the Trinity. So what about this looking at God in the face? And why was John talking about glory so much? And what was Jesus asking? Well, John earlier in chapter 1 said this. 
enarche, eis halagos, kai halagos, proston deon. In the beginning, enarche, there was the word halagos. And the word halagos, proston theon. Prosopon in Greek is theis. We translated, in our English translated, he was with God. And he was with God. But how was Jesus with God? What is he asking? God, I want to see you face to face like I did before I came down here. I've spent 33 years and I haven't seen you in the face because I've had to be clothed in this body. Why was he clothed in the body? So that he could redeem the body. The thing that deserved to go in the grave and stay there. And don't make any mistake, everybody on this planet knows they're going to die and many of them believe they're just going to stay there and that everything ends and that's the end of life and all of that. But that's not what happens. And Jesus is saying, I want to see you prostonteon. I want to be with you this way. Not just side by side. You see, Jesus was the express image of God the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, he was the radiance of what? God's glory. Unbelievable what John is saying. And I haven't even bothered to go to Paul and to uh, Peter or to the, the whole corpus of the Old Testament all points to this servant. What does that mean for us? Let me, let me finish with this. I'm going to give you two things. You really need to, th- these are not uh, peripheral. These are central to Christianity. And so keep them in mind because these are the framework. This is the skeleton. To be a Christian, you've got to know this. What was lost? What have we lost? All of us in this room, all the people out there that you see, whether they're uh, a member of ISIS, Islamic terrorist, the worst person that was serial killer, or good people in churches, or good people in mosques, or good people at synagogue. We all lost something, and we all lost the same thing. We all know something's wrong, Because we're always trying to find it. We know that we're trying to find it. Why? Because we spend our lives trying to find it. Money. Sex. Reputation. Education. Skill. Giftedness. We're all trying to find it. Everybody. Doesn't matter if you're poor. Doesn't matter if you're rich. If you're rich, you got to have more. There's this, uh, how many of you know, you won't want to raise your hands. The Kardashians, don't raise your hand. Pretend you don't know them. The youngest Kardashian, or she's a, a Jenner, Kylie, she has something like 30 or 40 exotic automobiles worth tens of millions of dollars. And I read an article recently, I didn't look at the pictures, I read an article recently that she wants more. 
more cars, more fun trips to outer space. Uh, Richard Branson, he could have fed the world with what he spent going to space so that he could float for 30 seconds. Not a, not a problem. I mean, a lot of good is going to come out of these space explorers, but think about that. For me, I will do this for me. Glory, I want glory. And every one of every pastor I know, except me, every pastor I know, including me, we are hogs for glory. We want people to like us. We want them to pat us on the back and tell us we're doing a good job. We go to seminary so that we can be popular. And when we don't get it, folks, Sunday afternoon is a misery. A misery. What did we lose? Well, let me tell you very quickly. We did not lose the image of God. That stayed even after mankind sinned and that image God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. We didn't lose the image of God. It was retained, and that's why every human being on this earth is worth something, the image of God, and why we're told to love and treat and share justice and equity and righteousness towards all people and all that good stuff. But we did lose something related to the image of God because an image was, the the whole idea of an image is to reflect something else. See, it's not the thing itself. The ancient gods were not the things themselves. The ancient people didn't believe that Dagon, the statue, was the god. They just believed that Dagon, the statue, represented the god, and therefore uh, they were in such close proximity, the god, the statue, and his being, that you you had to treat the statue with respect and reverence. And God comes along and he tells Moses, no No images. Okay? To represent me. Why? Because of glory. How would you how would you in a sculpture or anything else represent his glory? See, it's it's so unique it has to remain invis- invisible until NRK Aishalagos. Kai Halagos Prastan Theon. Until he showed up. And verse 14 says, and we beheld his glory. (laughs) We beheld his glory, the glory of monogene, the only begotten, monogenesis, the only begotten, the only ever of the Father. Unbelievable what we're talking about. So we lost our glory, and Paul Tripp says we become, after that, we become glory thieves. We cannot get enough glory. And so here's the thing. For most people in the world, they figure, well, you know, if I can just get this thing, if I can have this person, if I can get to this level uh, of money in my savings account, if I can get to this uh, level of beauty, physique, if I can go to this university, if I... On and on, you name it. 
It can even be a good thing. If I can just get this degree at seminary, if I could just get the, the Master of Divinity and then I'll work on my doctorate and then I'll really be somebody. And nothing wrong with those. Those are good things. Oh, my children. I want everything for my children. I want my children to be perfect. You will destroy your children. Make a God of them and you will destroy them. What's saving you? We become glory thieves. This is what we call idolatry. We're dead in our sins. Slaves to sin. The glory is hounding us. What will save us? Well, here it is, and I'll I'll finish with this. This is probably the most staggering part of Jesus' prayer because what saves you? More stuff? You could have the whole world. Jesus said you could gain the whole world, but what good is it? if you lose your soul. Your soul was meant for glory, but not that kind of glory. It was meant for something. Not that you do away with all other glory. That's the problem with an ascetic movement where you just give up everything and live in a cave. Not, Not the answer. They found that out. What is the answer? The answer is that earthly glory must be seen and subsumed, uh, contained, if you will, underneath another glory, a different glory. So what Jesus is saying in this prayer, and we'll look more at it every week, he says, glorify your son because the hour has come. He said that in chapter 12 too, the hour has come. See, in John's gospel, all the time when Jesus was confronted by people and things wanting him to become king, he said, my hour hasn't come. And so they took it as, oh, okay, well, he's waiting for a strategic moment. Once we get so many followers, then we can overthrow the Romans and we can throw the religious leaders out and we can take over glory. Right? And so that's what they thought. Hour's not yet. Okay, we'll wait. We'll give you a few more days, Jesus. We'll give you another six months. That wasn't what he's talking about. My hour has not yet come. In John 12 and here again in 17, he's talking about the cross. That's my glory. I'm going to lose it. All of it. It's going to get put on a cross. It's going to get nailed there in the most horrific way possible so that when you look at it and when you think about it, when you just let it go into your mind and down into your heart and you just prove it, you say, no way, that cannot be what he's talking. He's got to be talking about something else. Not. He's talking about that. My glory to restore yours. My glory for you. A glory that's unspeakable, that's indescribable, that is so weighty, so heavy, so significant, that if you do embrace that glory, it will make everything else beautiful. You won't ever be able to listen to... uh, Dave, Dave and I sat and listened to the Mendelssohn... What is it, an octet? 
Was that it? We were sitting next to each other at uh, the uh, Methodist Church listening to the octet, uh, Mendelssohn's octet, uh, and uh, played by Zool Bailey and this group of visiting musicians. And when they were finished, everybody stood up and was clapping and screaming. And Dave and I were crying. A couple of blubbering idiots, remember that? I mean, I was just, the tears were just pouring out of my face. And I think the reason that stuff becomes so precious to us is because you understand that, that there is something that transcends. And when you get Christ in your life, He becomes your glory. You don't become glory. He's glory. Who believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed? Listen, His powerful arm. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot in dry ground, but He had nothing in Him that was majestic. No glory. Nothing that would attract us. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs. We looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet, it was our weakness that he was carrying, our sorrows are what weighed him down. We thought, we thought his troubles were punishment from God for his own sins. But no, he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole, whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Yet the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We did violence, folks, and we do violence every time we sin to the glory of God. And to answer that, you have a king, a savior, who took all he was, not something out here, but all he was. He emptied himself of it, clothed it in frail humanity, and went to the cross so that we could sing that beautiful song, I will not boast in anything but the cross. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for this, uh, just knowing that you love us this way. We don't become glorious, but we can reflect the glory Our image can be restored the way it was so that we could reflect your glory. A little bit now, fully, when we also are face to face with our Savior. Father, please help us. Save us. 
and have mercy on us according to your grace. In Jesus, amen.